0: American songwriter. We had the opportunity to talk to Carcy Blanton over Zoom video. Carcy tells us about growing up in rural Virginia and moving to Los Angeles at 16 years old, where she jumped on a tour as a backup singer, all while still writing songs uh, for herself as a solo artist. She ends up moving to Philly to really take on a career in music. She said she wrote down on a Word document all these things that she needed to accomplish By the end of the year, and if she didn't, she was going to give up on music. Uh, She said she didn't accomplish most of the list, but obviously continued on uh, as a performer and a musician. She talks about moving to New Orleans, putting out a couple records, being able to open for Paul Simon, having a Kickstarter campaign for another record that does so well that she's able to put the album out and do a tour in Australia And she talks about where she was when COVID hit and the new record, Love and Rage. You can watch the interview with Carsey on our Facebook page and YouTube channel at Bringing It Backwards and follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Bringing Back Pod.
1: We'd appreciate your support if you follow and subscribe to our podcast, wherever you listen to podcasts.
0: We're Bringing It Backwards with Carsey Blanton. So uh, this podcast is about you and your journey in music and how you got to where you are now. Okay. I love your room. Are you in a, your studio?
1: Sort of. This is my bass player's studio, but this is where we do all our live streams. So we're like permanently set up for streaming.
0: <laughs> that's awesome. That's awesome. Yeah. I mean, have you guys been doing a lot of live streams during this?
1: Sort of. We um for most of it we've just been we were just doing one a month, but then um, with the new album coming out, I'm just kind of ramping it up and taking more stuff. So I've been streaming every day or two now. <laughs>
0: wow, that's awesome! Doing songs from the new record
1: mostly um this and that so like i've done a couple interviews and like uh video blog stuff and then i'm also doing these little like surprise shows on my own facebook i'm running a kickstarter for the record so i'm like dropping in facebook doing a song and be like it's available now go to kickstarter so (laughs) i um, love it i've been doing those like every day so i'm kind of like keeping everything plugged in to make it easier
0: (laughs) very cool very cool awesome well uh where are you originally from
1: Um, originally I'm from rural Virginia, a town called Luray.
0: Okay. What was that like?
1: That was mostly bad. I mean, (gasps) I like my, my young childhood was cool because we lived on like kind of not a working farm, but just like a big piece of land. And, Mm -hmm. um, I didn't go to school, so I kind of ran amok for my whole childhood.
0: (laughs) Oh, that's cool. Were you like homeschooled or something?
1: I was homeschooled. We call it unschooling. So there's sort of like two camps with homeschooling. A lot of homeschoolers are like super Christian. So they're Mm -hmm. homeschooling to keep their kids away from certain kinds of whatever influences or whatever. Yeah. And my parents are like the other end of the spectrum. They were like hippies who didn't want my spirit to be broken by. (laughs) by Oh,
0: wow. That's cool.
1: (laughs) (laughs) So I was more like kind of got to study whatever I wanted and goof off for most of my childhood.
0: Very cool. How did you get into music? Were your parents into music?
1: My parents are both super into music, but um, they they both like dabble, like they're amateur musicians, I guess I should say. Um, but uh-huh. we also like so my house growing up w- doubled as a retreat center. My dad's a therapist, and he did these like group therapy retreats. Um, so they are just constantly like people in our house, and we would be having parties all the time, and um, there was always always somebody in the house who was a musician. I feel like. <laughs>
0: Oh, awesome. So you're always, always around it.
1: Yeah. Yep. And then my parents are both just huge mu- music fans. So we always had, you know, records on and my dad can play like 15 songs and they're mostly John Prine songs. And...
0: Okay. On guitar? Yep.
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly.
0: That's my dad's awesome. like
1: a three chord guitar player, so he can get through most John Prine songs. <laughs> <laughs>
0: there you go. There you go. Well, what was the first instrument you learned then? Was it guitar?
1: I actually started on piano, um, but just like standard taking lessons. And then when I was, I think, 13, I started playing guitar and um, started writing songs around the same time as well.
0: Wow. With with the piano, were, was that something you're interested in or did your parents want you to be, you know, learn learn some music?
1: I don't even really remember. I, I was like five or six when I started lessons. So I think mm-hmm. probably my mom kind of plopped me down in piano lessons. And then um, I kept doing them, although I didn't really like piano. (laughs) Oh, really? (laughs) I'm I'm glad that I know it because it's, it's so much more useful to look at a keyboard to try and understand what chords you're right. I
0: mean, it's like the foundation, right? For everything.
1: Guitars are still like, I I don't know a lot of music theory. I'm very, uh, I have a very basic understanding and I still have a hard time figuring out what chords I'm playing on guitar, but Mm -hmm. if transpose it to the piano. Then I'm like, okay. It's one of these.
0: Sure. Oh, that's awesome. (laughs) Well, so at 13, you started writing your own songs. Yes. Wow.
1: Yeah. And then, um, I moved away from home when I was 16 and I moved to the West coast and I lived in this like group house with a bunch of other artists or a bunch of artists, I should say, cause I was 16. I wasn't quite anything yet, but I was really mm-hmm. interested in music and, um, moved out there, joined a couple bands. I was a backup singer in a funk band for a few months. That was my first tour. <laughs> when I was oh,
0: you did a tour at 16. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Where did, did you do the whole country?
1: No, it was like, so like, I don't know. I don't want to sound denigrating. It was like a tour of a random selection of dive bars in the West.
0: <laughs> okay. That's so cool. I mean, that must have been a cool experience as a 16 yeah. year old.
1: It was really cool. It was like, it, you know, it was they were friends and we had fun playing music together and we all like jumped in a van and drove around for six weeks. We probably played like two weeks worth of shows in six weeks. (laughs) (laughs) But I remember like being 16, I was getting into all these bars and like getting free drinks and stuff. And I was just like, this is awesome. Like no years that I'm not old enough to be in here. This is the coolest (laughs) job ever. I didn't get paid. I don't think I got paid anything for being on that tour, which now I'm like, what the heck? But at the time I was like, this is great. Like right. we had to like dumpster dive sometimes. Like it was, it was slim pickings, but it was really fun. And it still is really fun. I love that.
0: That's cool. That's really cool. So when you got back, you were, the, you were the backup singer in this band?
1: I was one of two. Yeah.
0: Okay. And from- Nicole,
1: and she and I also had a band where we'd write our own songs.
0: <laughs> oh, that, okay. So that was my next question. Did you also have your own band that you wrote, wrote the music for? And, and how, how did yeah. that happen?
1: Sort of. Yes. Um, so Nicole and I worked on songs. Our band was called the short skirts. Cause we were both really short. Um, <laughs> you and, didn't wear short skirts. It was because uh, we you're a short, short girl. Yeah, we, were short. we were short skirts. So uh, <laughs> we wrote songs together and I wrote songs of my own. And then um, I, I just performed like open mics and stuff. I got, I had like a gig at a pizza shop for a while. Um, so I just kind of from like my first gig, I remember being when I was 13 Um, and then just for the next like seven or eight years, I just kind of played whatever gigs I got and worked on songs. Um, and then I made my first record when I was 19. Oh, wow. um, Was that
0: self-produced and self, uh, released?
1: Yep. Yep. It was indeed. And then when I was like 20, 21, I moved to Philly. And at the time, like I had, I, on the west coast i like got together with a guy had a boyfriend we're living together and then like we broke up and i had one of those like this is my life things where i was like i gotta go to the east coast and try to make it in the music business sure (laughs) so i was 21 and i moved to philly and just like started playing gigs and trying to you know i had an album at that point so trying to like hawk that album and um i remember like i still have a like a word document from then where I was like, this is everything I'm going to do this year. And if I don't do it in the, this year, I'm going to quit music and do another job, do a real oh, job.
0: Oh, wow. very
1: like, this has to work out. I'm not going to waste my life trying to make it. But then I just really liked it. So most did of the ach- things still haven't happened.
0: Oh, I was going to say, did you achieve everything on the list?
1: No, I, I don't think I've achieved any of the things on the list. Maybe a couple. <laughs> <laughs> but I just was like, you know, it's just, I got the bug. It's just a mm-hmm. really fun job. Now it's like, as long as I'm surviving, then I'm basically like, this is fine.
0: <laughs> sure. Sure. You can eat and you have a roof over your head. You're all, you're all good to go.
1: Yeah. It's still the best job ever. Even in the pandemic, it's the best job ever. Honestly, like I'm having a better time than a lot of people because I just get to still play music with my friends. So
0: mm-hmm. that's, yeah. that's, that's, that's really cool. I think my bar got
1: lowered is what really happened. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I think everybody's bar got lowered. Like well, at least I can go outside and do something now or, you know, maybe I'll be able to go to a show and stand 40 feet away from each other.
1: Yeah. <laughs> cool things, Or you have to be like, well, at least we have leftover cookies. So
0: Right, there you go. <laughs> 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 at least the Girl Scouts are delivering now. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's cool. Um, well, So you had that record, you moved to Philly, and how long were you, are you still in Philadelphia?
1: I'm in Philly again. So I lived here for six or seven years. And then, um, in that time I met my husband, John, and then we moved to new Orleans and then we lived in new Orleans for eight years. And I just moved back to Philly in the pandemic.
0: Oh, Uh, wow. So when you moved to New Orleans, were you obviously still putting out records?
1: Yeah, it was just, it was one of those things where like, I just, I, I had gone through new Orleans a couple of times to play shows and I kind of like fell in love with it. And, um, we just were like, well, like my husband quit his job and was working. He does like web development. So he was like, where do you want to live? And I was like, New Orleans. So we just kind of fucked off to New Orleans. And wow. You
0: know,
1: yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, yeah, we, we just lived in New Orleans for a few years and um, it's an amazing, wonderful city, but it also is a crazy place to live. Mm -hmm. Um, and my family's up here and my band's up here so it was like when the pandemic hit and I wasn't going to be on tour anymore I was like okay I have to be close physically close to those people because otherwise I'm not going to see them until who knows when sure I actually (laughs) moved in with my bass player and his wife at the beginning of the pandemic and like we were supposed to start a tour the tour got canceled I was already at their house in Philly and I was just like I'm going to stay here for a little while so we can work on our new record and then it was like six months. I was in his house.
0: <laughs> and you're like, actually, I'm not going to leave. <laughs> wow. Okay. So you, when you moved down to, um, when you moved down to New Orleans, like, how, were you putting out records and, and touring? And like, was that kind of the cycle? Like, what was the next step?
1: Yeah. <laughs> it's like I feel like whenever I talk about this stuff, it all is so hazy. Cause I'm just like, I don't know. I just like, since I was 16, I've been just touring whenever anyone allows me to and making a record whenever I can scratch together the money. And that has been 15 years of my life.
0: <laughs> um,
1: <laughs> more, almost 20 years, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so I moved to New Orleans. The first thing I worked on down there, I made a jazz record. Um, all of my records except one are of originals, but I made a record called Not Old, Not New. Okay. Uh, and I just, I love old, like vocal jazz and Mm -hmm. popular song
0: which is huge down in in new orleans too right yeah Yeah,
1: it was kind of like a convergence of things like i had been wanting to make the record for a while and then when i moved down there i kind of got hooked up with a scene of like really incredible jazz musicians like a lot of these legend guys and um i was like well i want to make a jazz record i love that music so i like just kind of whipped it together (laughs) like I ran a Kickstarter, and that Kickstarter kind of took off, so I had like a bunch of money to work with kind of for mm-hmm. the first time. So I was able to hire just crazy a crazy cast of people like Ellis Marsalis played on it and um, just a bunch of like New Orleans jazz dudes that are great.
0: and how, how did that Kickstarter like you just put it up online or something and you were doing shows and kind of draw, driving people to the website? Like how did you gain you know that that much support?
1: Good question. Honestly, it was kind of the heyday of Kickstarter. Like, I think I ran that in like 2014, maybe. Okay. Right. 2013 could have been 2013, probably. So it was like, I just kind of hit the peak minute where like, there were a lot of people just surfing Kickstarter, looking for stuff to support at that point. Wow. I remember like the whole month that my project was up, it was the only jazz project on Kickstarter. So anyone who had selected jazz as like a thing they were interested in was getting notifications <laughs> to like go
0: oh
1: so i think like more than half of the people who donated were new people that found me on kickstarter
0: that is I, awesome
1: it was like one of those weird i always think like we talk a lot in the music business people talk about getting big breaks and i feel like at least for me there have been no big breaks but there have been a lot of small breaks it's so mm-hmm. like was a small break like i just randomly had like an extra 30 or 40 grand to work with because the kickstarter website just like did that one time
0: sure sure
1: you can't really plan for that stuff and it's not even who you know it's like way more random than that
0: (laughs) Mm -hmm. right 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 yeah you can't if you could plan that everybody would be (laughs) successful right
1: and the record like I did the the concept of the kickstarter it was called jazz is for everybody and Mm -hmm. I was basically like I'm going to make a jazz record and I'm not a jazz musician. And that's why you want me to make this record. I, I just like singing songs. So I've like mm-hmm. picked some songs that you, the person who doesn't listen to jazz are going to be able to understand and appreciate. And it's not going to feel like too academic for you or like foreign or something. Mm-hmm. So I think people connected to that too. I had a lot of backers that were like, Oh, I, my grandpa listened to, to jazz and I never got into it, but I want to, or whatever.
0: Right. Right. This
1: was like a primer for people. Like, like I wasn't, pitching it to people that already like jazz.
0: <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. You're pitching it to a new audience yeah. of, of people. That's, that's really cool. Well, you talked about getting little small breaks. I'm sure one of those was the Paul Simon shows yeah. that you got to do. Yeah. <laughs> Tell me about that.
1: That was also, so like right soon after I moved to Philly, I met this guy, Bill Ibe, um, and he was a manager. He, he managed me for five years. And when I met him, he was like, he's kind of like one of these old school music industry guys. He's like, he was in his, I guess, probably late sixties when we met. And Mm -hmm. he's like represented all these artists that went on to have big careers and he had worked for record labels and stuff. Um, And he like saw me playing in some coffee shop in Philly and was just like, I'm going to help you. Um, And the main, like he talks about himself as being an artist development, which I feel like is a, is a, management approach that doesn't happen very much anymore but it used to be a big, right yeah was
0: like, i was gonna the labels yeah. used to do that yeah, yeah they yeah. would like send an R guy and find yeah. somebody you know wherever and yeah. then kind of try to develop and now it's just what is your streams on spotify yeah. and how many tiktok followers do you have
1: <laughs> yeah So Bill was really great for me. And and one of the main ways he helped me is he just like went to all of my shows, watched them and would like give me feedback in a way that I could hear. So he'd be like, I think you should play this. I think you should not do that song anymore. Maybe your banter should, whatever. That was extremely helpful. Like I think I probably would not be still in music if I hadn't had that experience. But the other thing he did that was really useful for me is he would take me to all these crazy huge shows and like take me backstage and have me meet people. And wow. he, would, he was like, I was like 21, 22 at this time. And he would always like take me to a show. Like I remember one time he took me to a, a Bob Dylan show and we were like backstage and wow, or whatever. And he was like, he like took me aside and he was like, I brought you here because this is where you belong. And that was always what he would say. He'd be like, I brought you here because this is where you are. This is who you are and, and you should be comfortable here.
0: Uh-huh. That's cool. <laughs> that
1: was like part of his artist development approach was just like getting me comfortable hanging out with like famous musicians.
0: Right. But that, I mean, that's even a thing in itself. You know what yeah. I mean? Like, I mean, I've did radio for 15 years and I remember the being so green to it in the beginning, like, oh my gosh, I'm hanging out backstage and there's all these like super famous people or, or whatever. And you want to make sure you don't act like an idiot or, you know, say the wrong thing. Like, I mean, there's definitely a, an art, so to speak, to being able to put yourself in that position. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And I think for Bill, it was also just like, he wanted me to have confidence. He wanted me to feel like Mm -hmm. I belonged and not like I was, you know, some internet
0: like fanning out in there. Yeah. yeah.
1: Like you too are a great artist and that's why we're here with Paul Simon. Right. So So, uh, yeah, I got the Paul Simon shows. It was just two shows. Um, My bass player, Joe, same guy um, did them with me. So uh, Bill got me those through some guy that he, used to work with who made yeah. so it. So was, was really-
0: that those the biggest shows you had ever played uh, at the time? Yeah, biggest yeah, rooms?
1: Still be the biggest. I think there were 5,000 seats. I don't think I've, yeah, those are still the biggest shows I've ever played. That was almost 10 years ago.
0: Was that intimidating?
1: Totally. Yeah, it was intimidating, but it was also like one of those things where that was right after I had decided to like be a professional musician. So I feel oh, like, I what, what no, I think it was like 2012, 2011, maybe. So it was a couple years into it. But it was pretty soon after i had moved to philly okay and and yeah so i think in some ways like if it happened now it would seem more crazy at the time i was like okay sure i do (laughs) my job now so i get to open for paul simon that makes sense
0: (laughs) right 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 what do you remember what what made you make that choice like okay i'm gonna be a professional musician i mean it sounds like when you got to la at 16 that was kind of your
1: Yeah. Well, yeah, it was was Eugene actually, (laughs) Uh, Okay. but yeah, I mean, I knew that I was a musician start at least from that age. And I think I uh, had to warm up to the idea of doing it professionally. So like when I moved back to Philly and I made that word document, it was kind of like, okay, I'm going to do this, but only if, you know, only if I make this much money or only if I get Mm -hmm. to play these size rooms or only if I sell this, this many records or whatever. So it was, was
0: trying
1: to like, I was trying to make myself commit to it only if I was a certain amount of successful. Got it. Then I enjoyed it too much to do that. <laughs> so sure. I, kept, okay. no, I never became that amount of successful.
0: <laughs> right, right. Oh, well, okay. Well, I want to get back to this, the record on the Kickstarter. So you yeah. you put out um, Not Old, Not New mm-hmm. through the Kickstarter campaign. And like with that, were you able to tour that record? Like what was the next little, um, yeah. little victory you had?
1: Yeah. That record was interesting. It was like, it was a mixed bag. I got a bunch of opportunities I hadn't had like through the Kickstarter. I got to go tour Australia. Cause I just had a bunch of like Australian backers that like, Wow. Up with another artist and I went and opened for her and I got to do that. Um, and there was like a European tour as part of that too. Um, but at the same time, I, it was also my first chance to do a full band tour, but I didn't mm-hmm. have a band. I just had my bass player. So there was like, oh. There was some drama around like trying to put a band together and do this US tour without like, we didn't have, we didn't have the basis of like having done shows together in a hometown. So I was mm-hmm. like trying to hire people. I didn't really know how to do it. It was like, felt, it was fairly, it was a mixed bag that tour. But it was a yeah. experience. And I did one of the people I hired uh is a keyboard player named Pat Firth. So he's still in my band. So oh, okay. We hired all these people, and we got one. That's that's pretty good.
0: <laughs> yeah. You have the bass player now. A key a keys. Yeah. <laughs> was and it hard to find people? I mean, how do you even do that? You just put like an ad up on Craigslist or something, like looking for a band. No so hard.
1: I it's still hard. I, I just ask people for recommendations. So, like my my friends in music, I would be like, Do you know any drummers that are good? I'm still asking this question. We still don't have a drummer, but, um, (laughs) but yeah, I would always just take recommendations, but again, it's like, it depends who you ask. And it also depends like your the cocktail of personalities you have is so important that you can't Mm -hmm. really predict who's going to work out in your band until you play shows or like go on tour together. Mm -hmm. So there were a lot of things that seemed promising and then sort of crashed and burned or like fizzled out or whatever.
0: Okay. And then, well, once you got back from Australia, did you... Did you have a band that you took to Australia?
1: No, those are just solo shows. Okay.
0: When did you put the band together and what, 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 uh, where were you at when that
1: happened? That, that was just for the US tour. So we did like 30 cities or something. So we had like wow. a full summer of touring the US and we had like different bands and on different legs and it was like, it was chaos. It, but it did, it taught me a lesson about, um, how to, you know, how to make everybody comfortable and like make the shows good while you're having to like, have a lot more people involved because I'd done so much touring solo and then duo that I was like, I was kind of like, oh, how hard can it be? Just get a couple more people like Joe. But again, like Joe's been in my band for 11 years, and I have it's so hard to find somebody who's that like reliable and good and professional and right. to hang out with, most importantly,
0: <laughs> exactly. Well, and and so that US tour was on that same album that Not Old Not New,
1: yeah. And then, um, the following record was called So Ferocious, and uh-huh. and Kind of the, the band drama continued. Like we hired, an, we did another full band tour for that record and it was like another cast of characters. So it was like an o- ongoing saga <laughs> until just the last probably two or three years. I think I kind of got better at figuring out how to hire band members.
0: <laughs> Even with Buckle Up, was that, or Buck Up, was that the same?
1: Buck Up, uh, we toured pretty much all with the same band, if I remember correctly. So Joe and Pat now are like lifers as far as I'm concerned. They're in okay. the.
0: They're in the band.
1: They're in the band and like we're, you know, we have a certain al- amount of commitment with each other and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, we had a drummer for most of the Buck Up touring named uh, Coco Dugas, who's a Canadian guy, which was its own thing. Cause we had to like get him a visa and stuff. But uh, but yeah, we had we had a pretty solid band for that year as well. Um, although he's he's no longer in the band. So it's sort of like if shows ever come back then we're back on the looking for a drummer tip.
0: Oh, okay. Drummer's
1: the hardest to find.
0: I know. I know. That's why I bought my five year, or four year old, almost turning five-year-old son, a drum kit, uh, electronic drum, kit.
1: You can medium well and just not be a dick. Like you have a full life of professional. Yeah.
0: Music. You <laughs> can pick you the pick of the litter. Right. I mean, it's crazy. <laughs> well with that, like, were, were you finishing up the buck buck up tour when coronavirus hit? Like where were you guys at when yeah. that all happened?
1: Basically, so let's see, Buck Up came out in February 2019. So yeah, we were just finishing that tour. We had we basically did a year of touring behind that album, and we had a run of shows scheduled for like February, March, April, May of last year. And okay. So we did the February shows. The last show I played in person was on March 1st.
0: Oh, wow. Yeah. Were, was it in New Orleans or were you uh, on the road? Right.
1: That was the end of a West Coast tour. So, the very last show I played was in Portland, Oregon on March 1st. <laughs> and, um, oh, wow. That was like the end of a run of like a week on the West Coast. And then we were about to do the East Coast and the Midwest and all that. And um, yeah, I flew to Philly to start the East Coast leg. And that was like the week that we started getting cancellations. I remember the day actually, I was like on vacation in between the West Coast tour and the Philly leg and like. I just got a call from my manager and she was like, okay, some things are canceling this one and this one. And then like that day was just like, felt like the world was exploding.
0: <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah Cause like, at that point
1: from all directions. Yeah.
0: Did you know, I mean, at that point we, they, we knew that this, this thing was happening, right? Like yeah. this virus, did you see any, um like, uh, like a drop in, in people like showing up their show, like say it was a sold out show and then only, two thirds of the pe- people came. Like, did you Not see any really, of that prior?
1: I think just because like we, we ended our tour March 1st and I feel like between the 1st and like the 15th is when that started happening. Like people started getting freaked out. And I'll give you an example. We, for the last West Coast tour we did, I had like a part of the show where I had people hug each other. Uh huh. I was like, you're gonna hug the person near you and whatever it was like a, the whole audience participation thing and everybody hugged each other at every one of those oh, shows. and like- interesting. And nobody actually at the like second to last show was the first time somebody didn't want to do a hug. And that was oh. the first time I was like, huh, that's weird. But it like, it was right. The timing didn't quite work. So we basically finished our tour as though everything was normal.
0: That's interesting. Yeah. The last in-person interview that I did was speaking to Philly was with uh, G love oh, and, yeah. and it was like right on the cusp. It was like the, It went from the 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 knuckle, like in hand, instead of handshake, to like the elbow. Yeah. And so it was like the elbow thing, and we were kind of like, you know, halfway joking about it, like, oh, you know, coronavirus, whatever. Yeah. And then, like, days later,
1: everything was was it was
0: done. Yeah, it was gone. So,
1: like, I'm I'm sure everybody's been saying this, but it's funny to think now, like, when we rescheduled our March shows, we rescheduled them for May. So at the time, we were thinking, couple months we'll be through this like right that seems so crazy like what did we think was gonna happen in two
0: months (laughs) but right it was like when coachella was like you know what we're gonna push it to october everyone's like oh fall that'll that'll be cool and i'm like there's no way a hundred thousand people are getting together in (laughs) five months six months it doesn't make any sense eternal (laughs) yeah oh my so you're on vacation getting calls from your manager saying hey this is ending Yeah. And then, yeah, obviously that must've rocked your world quite a bit. That's your livelihood, right?
1: Yeah. And then I remember like, I was on the porch at the vacation house talking to my manager and I was like, okay, here's what we're going to do. I'm going to go to Philly anyway, even though the East coast tour is getting canceled because I had a flight to Philly. Mm -hmm. I'm going to go to Philly anyway, and we'll do a online show and we'll call it a rent party. So I remember oh. it was like March 10th of last year. It was probably exactly a year ago that we planned our first rent party. And the rent party idea was literally, I wanted to be able to pay the band's rent because at the time, like they're both sidemen. They they don't have a job where they can do a live stream and ask for donations because they're not the front person of a band.
0: Right, They're yeah, exactly.
1: Yeah, like sidemen, it's funny the way it's like, this pandemic has made really clear what the like labor relations are in all these different areas. Mm-hmm. So like the labor relation in music is the front person gets to get paid, like, like even by venues, like Joe can't do a gig by himself at a big venue and get money. I have to get the gig. And then I hire him to do the gig. So like, if you're a sideman, the calculus was went from, I have the next six months of gigs planned out. And I know I'm going to be able to make X amount of money to, I have zero gigs and zero money. Like it was very right. small. Yeah. Like I already had a Patreon. So I had some income that's. Oh,
0: that's good. Yeah. I know a lot of artists had to had to jump to Patreon.
1: Yeah. I've been on Patreon for a long time, which was super lucky. Um, But yeah, I and even like streaming income, like it's not a ton of money, but I as a songwriter and and, like a band leader, I have certain sources of income besides gigs. Mm -hmm. And If you're a sideman, that's just not true. You have gigs and that's it usually.
0: Right, Maybe. and even the crews that are doing yeah. the tours, I mean, yeah. that are affected. The, the you know, the Green Day guys that yeah. go around and set up the stage and oh, drive yeah. the tour bus, like all those type of people, um, are, are we're all hurting.
1: Totally. So, so that became clear at some point in march because i was talking to joe and pat and they were like we have no gigs for the foreseeable future we don't know what we're going to do and i was like all right we're throwing a rent party so i came here to joe's house we threw our first rent party and it was like march 27th or something of last year and we got a ton of donations and i think a lot of people have said this too like the first one you did the first uh live stream everybody did and asked for money it was like it came flooding in because right was worried about us
0: sure sure
1: like when people used to bang the pots and pans because at the beginning we were like thank you essential workers and then it was off at some point
0: (laughs) right exactly the essential workers are still there yet nobody's outside banging pots and pans for them anymore
1: (laughs) so anyway the first rent party went really well and so we were just like all right we'll keep doing them so i've we've done one every month we're about to have our one year anniversary our 13th rent party at the end wow um, and I have, we have managed to pay the band's rent every month. Um, oh, so that's the,
0: incredible.
1: Thank you. <laughs> so yeah, even though the amount has fluctuated, we've still like pulled it off. So it's still a successful rent party. Um, so yeah, that's been what we did in the pandemic. Uh, and we also have made a record, um, which was like a whole other escapade.
0: <laughs> yeah. Tell me about that. So the new record, Love and Rage, was yeah. were these songs written uh, pre-COVID, uh, during the pandemic? Tell me, Tell me yeah. about this.
1: They were about half written. Um, when right. the hit. So I started writing in summer 2019. And what's interesting is that they were all about like apocalypse and like the feeling of impending doom. <laughs> <laughs> but, like the for- first one I wrote for this record is called Party at the End of the World. And I wrote-
0: Oh, and you wrote that before coronavirus was a thing?
1: Yeah, which is only funny because it's like, I think a lot of people can relate to this. It's like the, the feeling that we're coming up on something that's going to be like, that's going to make society collapse. That's been around for a while. So like uh-huh. coronavirus just accelerated what was on already- yeah,
0: right. <laughs> which is right.
1: Like, all of this is not sustainable. How are we going to pull this off for the rest of my life, let alone my kid's life? Like we've all felt that way for a long time. It's uh-huh. not like everything was hunky-dory until coronavirus hit.
0: Right, right, exactly.
1: <laughs> so yeah, I already had started writing on that theme. And then when COVID hit, it was just like, okay, I guess I'll stay with this. Like keep writing these songs. So the love and rage songs are like, they're about, you know, all those emotions we've all been going through a lot of mm-hmm. anxiety and feeling like the world's ending, but then also a lot of like love and feeling like, oh, people are really getting together and making stuff happen. We, we were in my band pretty involved in the summer protests. And so there's some protest songs on there as well.
0: Okay. And even the photo is from one of those, right? Yeah. The record cover.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So the cover, um cover is a photo of two people lying on the ground on like concrete with masks. Uh-huh. Um, and that was taken at one of the Philly protests in, last summer.
0: Oh, wow.
1: Where there was like one of the early George Floyd protests. They had everybody lay down for eight minutes and 50 seconds or whatever it was.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, and that's a photo from 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 that event. Yeah. Yep. Oh, wow. So
1: album cover there by a guy called Isaac Scott who just took photos at all the protests. Um, we weren't at that one, but we were at, I don't know, six or eight other protests in Philly. Philly was going pretty hard last summer. Um, really? Yeah. And there's one of the other album photos, I think it's going to be the back cover, um, is of a bunch of people climbing over a fence getting tear gassed. And oh, wow. That protest became kind of famous in Philly because... Uh, they just they really fucked up like they there's all this footage of how the police kettled people and gassed them and started arresting people putting them in unmarked vans and stuff and (sighs) the city had to apologize and there's like multiple class action lawsuits going on the mayor apologized and the police commissioner resigned and stuff so the protest became this like kind of linchpin event around here Mm -hmm. Um, but yeah so uh all that stuff is is Uh, makes a kind of a soup in this album
0: (laughs) okay okay where were you recording it was that were you able to record it where you're sitting right now or uh how did that work i mean logistically with yeah the studios being closed
1: yeah so we attempted to record it from joe's house where i was where i had quarantined with my bass player and uh i bought a bunch of gear and like learned to use pro tools right at the beginning we had we had connected already with our producer his name is tyler chester Mm-hmm. Um, so we already had plans to make a record this past summer. Um, but we were going to like, all go to El Paso and do it in a studio and live there for a week and whatever. And all that obviously was canceled. So at first mm-hmm. I talked to Tyler and he was like, listen, get pro tools, get this interface. I'll sign you into my account and teach you how to use everything. So for the, for like May and June of last year, I was like really trying to learn how to be <laughs> a recording engineer. Uh,
0: producer. <laughs> yeah.
1: Yeah. It's funny actually, cause Tyler was still producing. We would do these zoom sessions where uh-huh. I would like record something, send it to him on pro tools. He would listen and he'd be on zoom and be like, okay, try another take, but do it like this. So it was like, we oh, still a, it.
0: <laughs> yeah, he was still able to do it, but virtually.
1: Yeah. But the issue ended up being just like really dumb gear stuff. Like I basically couldn't get high enough quality stuff or there's like electrical interference or like the tone isn't quite right and it's so hard to like do mic placement properly or whatever so we used some of the tracks that we recorded here but mostly we ended up re-recording them in person in la so okay remember joe and pat and i drove all the way to la from philly wow (laughs) went to tyler's studio and finished the record because tyler had already had covid so we like went and joined his pod and uh did a did a recording session
0: whoa that was that drive pretty int- i mean i just moved my family and i just moved to nashville Oh wow. um from san diego california and we just did the like six day across country drive yeah. um but i'm sure earlier in the pandemic was it hard to like pull over use the restroom like tell was it that must've been a totally different animal to.
1: <laughs> yeah, it was, um, <laughs> we camped. So we brought all our camping gear. And- oh, okay.
0: That <laughs> makes it a bit easier.
1: <laughs> yeah. But we still like, we would go into grocery stores and buy food and then cook it on a camp stove. So our exposure was a little higher, but we were pretty safe considering. Okay.
0: Interesting. Um, yeah.
1: Yeah. We all were like, well, if we drive out and we camp every night and we only go to grocery stores every other day, then maybe we could do it safely. And mm-hmm I think we, I mean, we felt pretty good about it. We had like our wet wipes in the car and our masks and all that.
0: (laughs) Oh yeah, of course. (laughs) Very cool. Well, so you, you make it, you record in LA.
1: Yeah. So we recorded mostly in LA. Um, Still a lot of the tracks are, were long distance though. So a lot of the players did not come into the studio, but we sent them the tracks we were making in the studio so they could record on that from home.
0: And then they would send it back to you.
1: Yeah. Yeah. The do only think- person who joined us live other than Tyler, our producer, is Griffin Goldsmith, the drummer. Um, he's in the band Dawes. And he's a good friend of Tyler. So he like just agreed to come and wear a mask and do in-person stuff with us. And we had like a drum isolation booth too. So it made it a little, little safer.
0: Yeah. Wow. Do you think that the record would have turned out differently if it was everybody in the room together or no, even though it was all virtually?
1: I'm sure it would have been different. What's funny is like, we still got a lot of live sound because with the four of us, like with Griffin, we were able to track three or four of the songs live. Mm -hmm. Um, And then what the other, the thing that was better about it is that we got some people that I don't think I would have gotten if we weren't in the pandemic. (laughs) So just everyone's home and no one's on tour. It was right easier to get people to play on my record. Like I just, we like set out some, some cold calls where I was like, who knows if Pete Thomas is going to actually do this. And he was just like, sure. What yeah,
0: about- I'm sit around anyway. Right.
1: Yeah. So we had like a lot of real dreamy, uh, personnel on this record that I don't think I could have gotten in a regular year.
0: <laughs> That's amazing. Sorry, my son just walked in here. No problem. <laughs> well, um, incredible. And you've, you've put out one song. Oh, how many songs from the record have you put out so far? Just the one?
1: Two songs. So our first single was Be Good. That came out in January. And the uh-huh. second single is Shit List. And that came out just last week.
0: Yeah, okay. I saw that one come out. And I, and I, and I listened to it prior to, to doing this. Um, uh, what What made you choose those as the kind of first two songs from the record?
1: Yeah, well, we wanted to do a love and a rage song. Oh, that makes sense. <laughs> yeah. There you go. So, Be Good is sort of one of the most lovey songs. The The refrain is be good to the people you love and love everybody alive. Mm-hmm. So it's sort of like a big feel good, you know, loving song. And then Shitlist, alternatively, is a song I wrote about Nazis or neo Nazis. Oh, wow. I should say. So, um, <laughs> so <laughs> that's the rage one. i to get it. There them. you go. Yeah.
0: And then is the the record coming? The record coming out? And it's coming out March twenty second, right? A couple of weeks from now.
1: April thirtieth.
0: Oh, April thirtieth. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, and and between the two, between then, are you going to be putting out more an, another couple of singles in that kind of love rage?
1: Probably not. Actually, okay. I think it's just going to uh, drive towards the actual release from here.
0: <laughs> very cool very cool i
1: might have another video coming out before then but yeah so be awesome. good and shit lists are out and i have the kickstarter going on until the end of this month um awesome. and then end the next month is the album
0: and then another uh rent rent show or
1: yep every month yeah march 27th is the next rent party and then the end of april there's one that's like our album release party quote unquote oh awesome
0: <laughs> That's going to be uh, are you going to be able to you think um with the album release have like a your full band or is it just still just going to be kind of stripped back?
1: Well, me and Joe and Pat are the full band right now because uh-huh. we don't have a drummer, but we're not going to bring in a new drummer or anything until
0: oh, Okay. The,
1: yeah. But yeah, we've been doing most of them as a trio.
0: That's it's awesome. Pretty
1: well and it is it's so much harder to do a live stream sound with a drummer, so it's sort of like a blessing.
0: Okay. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: in quarantine.
0: Very cool. Well, thank you so much, Carsey, for talking with me today. I really appreciate it.
1: My pleasure. Thanks for having me.
0: Yeah, I have one more question for you. I want to know if you have any advice for aspiring artists.
1: Whew, okay. Yeah, my advice for aspiring artists is that your creativity is the most important relationship you have in your life your relationship with your muse is the important one so whatever happens in the business and whatever happens in your personal life is less important than cultivating that relationship with your own creativity that's what will actually make you happy and nothing else will